there's something I've been noticing over the past few years. Actually, a bunch of other reporters and researchers have noted it too. And it's deeply troubling how far-right extremists are connecting all over the world. Most of those connections are happening online, in chats like the ones I got access to. It became clear a few years back in 2019, after the attack on the mosques in New Zealand, where a neo-Nazi killed 51 people. The attack was live-streamed, watched and reposted all over the internet. And the attacker wrote a document that was translated into over a dozen languages, including French, German, and Ukrainian. And after that, there was a whole string of attacks, one following another, across the world. We head overseas now to an attack at a mosque investigated as an attempted act of terrorism. Maybe you heard about them. Investigators say the suspect expressed right-wing and anti-immigrant views online and was inspired by another notorious mosque attack. Germany is in shock after an anti-Semitic attack on a synagogue in the holiest day of the Jewish calendar, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. There were a lot. Maybe you couldn't keep track. Maybe it was too overwhelming to even try. Or to face that these weren't random. That a lot of these are inspired by one another, by shared ideology, a commitment to violence. Italian police have seized a large arsenal of weapons, including a three-meter missile, during a Monday raid on neo-Nazi sympathizers in the country. And look, I'd argue that these individuals committing violence in the name of the same racist conspiracy theories, groups like the base and others, consider this a successful outcome of their overall message, even if the individual attackers are not directly connected to these groups. The chaos, the death, it's part of the goal of neo-Nazi terrorism. This is what they consider a phase in accelerationism. The idea is very simple. They put it on social media platforms with the idea of hoping to promote more violence and to gain more notoriety and also to promote their fascist manifestos. We saw this pattern continue in Buffalo, New York in May 2022. This 18-year-old white gunman who described himself to be a fascist and a white supremacist killed 10 people at a supermarket in Buffalo, New York. All of them were black Americans. What's happening is a global movement among far-right extremists in multiple countries. It's not just online, because there's one big thing that these groups talk about a lot, that they're collectively obsessed with, and that they can only get in person, military training. And recently, it appears at least some of them are seeking that out in one particular location the war in Ukraine. From Vice News and Gimlet, I'm Ben Maku, and this is American Terror. Episode 7, Training Grounds. I'm in Lviv. It's actually a pretty peaceful place, right? Yes, it's a very peaceful place <laughs> right now. <laughs> Besides the air sirens. Yeah. It's March 2022, a week after Russia invaded Ukraine, and I'm with a Ukrainian interpreter in Lviv. She's I'm asked to remain anonymous for safety reasons. We're walking around the center of the city. It's old, with lots of churches and former synagogues, lots of big, open town squares. And my interpreter and I, we come upon a large crowd of men being handed weapons by soldiers. They're buying guns uh, to have 
before a potential, you know, invasion from Russian troops. Pretty interesting to see, you know, just bags of guns and ammunition being handed out. At the time, the city's in a strange purgatory. It's one of the safer big cities in Ukraine because it's all the way in the west near the Polish border. So there's no fighting on the ground. But there's still airborne attacks and the sound of air raid sirens all the time. Sandbags are piled up everywhere and statues are wrapped up for protection from airstrikes. People are very nervous. There's a lot of like lineups for buying weapons and people are, you know, wearing military fatigues and soldiers are everywhere. I was there in February and March, the beginning of this iteration of the war. But I followed this conflict for years and reported in Ukraine multiple times because the fighting between Russia and Ukraine started in 2014 and so did the flow of far-right fighters joining the war, all before the entire world was watching. Even back then, Putin claimed that Ukraine was run by Nazis and used it as a pretext for Russia's invasion of the East. He also claimed that Russia needed to defend ethnic Russians and Russian-speaking Ukrainians. Both of these claims were lies and effective propaganda. In reality, the number of far-right extremists fighting for Ukraine has always been relatively small. But to deny the existence of their presence and their potential impact, to me, that's short-sighted, and for a lot of reasons. So when the conflict exploded in 2022, and the Ukrainian government announced that it was forming an international legion calling for foreign recruits, I got back in touch with some sources over there to see what was going on. So I'm just going to meet with Vlad Kovalchuk. Vlad Kovalchuk. He claims to be one of the coordinators of international volunteers for the National Corps, the political wing of the Azov Regiment, a unit that's long been linked to far-right political parties and neo-Nazi groups. You had a long day. Yes. Did you, tra- did you travel from... You travel from Ivano-Frankivsk? Yes, from Ivano-Frankivsk. Yeah. I met Vlad at a coffee shop. You gotta get caffeinated, my friend. He's drinking a cappuccino, wearing a black turtleneck. He's clean-shaven with slick back hair. Azov has a reputation for being very fearsome soldiers. They're very good soldiers. They're able to repel the Russians often, right? They also have a reputation in the West as being far right, being neo-Nazis. What do you, what do you say to that? When your country is attacked by Russia, usually you don't ask, uh, hello, are you a neo-Nazi? And if someone says yes, so you cannot fight. Of course, we didn't ask uh, them about political beliefs. Vlad's been associated with Azov for years. He's seen Azov's military regiment grow and change. Back in 2014, the Ukrainian army was under-resourced and small. And so to bulk up their ranks, they relied on paramilitary and militia groups, some backed by ultranationalist political parties. Like I said, I've been covering this war for a few years now. And one of the groups that I started to report on was the Azov Regiment. Azov was formed by a far-right politician named Andriy Bilecki. Andriy Bilecki, leader Nacionalnego Korpusu, Pierwszy Komandyr Polku Azov. And Bilecki has a clear, documented history of ultranationalism and anti-Semitism. In 2010, he declared that Ukraine's mission was to, quote, lead the white races of the world in a final crusade, against Semite-led Untermenschen, the German word for less than human. 
His supporters called him Bellier Vosges, or white ruler. So yeah, not a secret. At first, many of the members of Azov were skinhead thugs, soccer hooligans, the type of guys who start fights after soccer matches. And Azov also received political support from the interior minister of Ukraine. And initially, this group of fighters, they were successful. During the early years of the war in 2014, Azov helped Ukraine take back control of the port city of Mariupol. The Ukrainian government recognized this success and decided to integrate Azov into the Ukrainian National Guard, while basically looking the other way when it came to their politics. It's a regiment of National Guard of Ukraine. It's official unit. It's not far-right militia, which is uncontrolled. They are controlled. They were incorporated to the Ministry of Interior. So, of course, if there are some neo-Nazis, it happens. So Vlad tells me there are some neo-Nazi members, but it's not a big deal. But from the beginning, the neo-Nazi connections of the group were pretty clear. In 2015, the head of Azov's international outreach was interviewed on the group's podcast and said, quote, Our movement is growing, but it's still too small to compare it to a real movement of the kind Germany had in between wars. But we're moving towards this goal. If it's not clear, she's talking about interwar Germany. So the movement that led to the Nazis. And the founder of Azov, Bilecki, has described the escalating war in eastern Ukraine not as a tragedy, but as an opportunity. Members drew swastikas on their helmets or wore various neo-Nazi patches on their uniforms. And for years, the official symbol of the group has been a symbol that eerily resembles a Nazi insignia, the SS Wolfsangel. So one question, though, is the, the Azov symbol still has sort of this allusion or inference to, to Nazism. Why, why do you keep that symbol if you want to avoid being labeled far-right? Uh, it, it doesn't matter when... Yeah, uh, it doesn't matter if we change it or not. Like, many people died having this symbol on their, their uniform. So what's the problem? Vlad, and Azov more generally, do this. They try to deny to media that these symbols matter or that they don't mean what they clearly mean. I talked to Vlad for around two hours, and as a source, he's useful. He's been around with the group for years. He has a lot of insider information. But I'm not naive enough to think that someone who is part of a far-right group, like this, is going to admit to it. On mic. And did you have a lot of international volunteers before the war? In 2014, yes, there was a, a lot of international volunteers from Sweden, from Great Britain, from Italy, even from Russia and Belarus. So. I mean, how important are these international volunteers to to the Azov battalion, but also to Ukrainian military? Mm. They are important because they have uh, very valuable experience, which uh, we can use in order to fight Russia. And they can also teach uh, those who don't have any military experience. So it is really useful because usually they are from NATO countries. They have experience from European uh, armies, from American army, and their experience is really very valuable for us. From the beginning of the war in eastern Ukraine, foreign soldiers found their way to the battlefield. The numbers are hard to track, but best estimates are that in the first five years of the war, almost 4,000 foreign fighters joined up to fight for Ukraine. 
The vast majority were actually from Russia. About 900 fighters came from other places, like Italy, Belarus, Turkey, Sweden, Austria, and Croatia. Of course, not all of them are far-right extremists. This is an active war zone, and these networks are secretive, so it's very hard to tell. But what we do know is that for years, Azov's political wing, the National Corps, has made an effort to recruit and make connections with far-right and neo-Nazi groups throughout Europe. To be clear, the National Corps has never gotten enough votes to have a seat in Ukraine's parliament, but they have shown interest in specifically reaching American extremists on the far right. They kept an active presence in US-based neo-Nazi forums. And in 2016, an American teenager who claimed to be a national socialist was interviewed on Azov's podcast. Uh, hello, Andrew. Hello, good morning. Uh, let's start with uh, the basic question. What, what is the current state of the nationalist movement in the United States? During the interview, this teen talked about how he thinks that neo-Nazis in the U.S. are eager to learn from them. So finding ways to get younger people into the movement would be helpful. Any examples from Europe uh, would be welcomed greatly. Several months later, this kid joined Atomwaffen Division. Around 2017, the FBI and U.S. law enforcement had started to hone in on these connections. And they specifically warned that Azov was, quote, believed to have participated in training and radicalizing United States-based white supremacy organizations. In fact, they were. In 2018, I noticed that a U.S.-based group called the Rise Above Movement had met up with Azov. Members posted on social media about the group's travels to Europe, to Italy, to Germany for Hitler's birthday, and then to Ukraine, where they met and put on MMA events with Azov. The leader of the Rise Above movement posted a video of a cage match in Kyiv. Later, in 2019, I listened to calls as the leader of the base, Ronaldo Nazaro, talked about Ukraine. That would be a, the, the best uh, way to make use of, of Ukraine, is use it as a resource for our guys who have the, the ability to travel out there for training to do it. Because then they can come back and they can bring that knowledge back to us. We know that at least one former member of the base, a guy named Ryan Birchfield, did go to Ukraine. He first joined the Marine Corps to gain military training, but quickly dropped out and traveled to Ukraine instead. And other neo-Nazis tried to do the same thing. Okay, date is January 10th, 2020. Uh, January 10th, 2020. It's 8.56 p.m. And we're interviewing someone from Massachusetts. This is one of the recruitment calls I got access to. Again, we're changing the infiltrator's voice to protect him. Uh, 25. He's uh, picked up uh, tip about the base from someone in Ukraine. Yeah, Ivan, can you hear me? Yes, sir, yes, I can. Okay, good. This guy says he's a former U.S. National Guardsman, and he tried to join the base in 2020. Uh, I did like a year in the National Guard, and then I left the National Guard to go to Syria, and I fought with the YPG in Syria for about a year. And then after I got back from Syria, uh, I just did like odd welding jobs, and then I went to Ukraine for about uh, six, six to eight months. He says that in Ukraine, he first joined a group called the Georgian National Legion for a few months. And then he joined Azov and was with them for like two weeks. But while he was in Ukraine, he says, a friend there recommended that he go back to the States and join a neo-Nazi group. And, uh, 
I've always had this kind of these uh, beliefs and everything. And when I was in uh, Ukraine, I kind of got uh, steered towards you guys, so that's why I uh, followed through with what the guy over there told me. Now here I am. By 2019, Azov is getting more attention in the U.S. I have called for establishing the Azov Battalion as some type of terrorist organization. That's former U.S. Congressman Max Rose. 36 members of Congress sign a letter calling for the U.S. State Department to designate Azov as a foreign terrorist organization, or an FTO. They wanted to clearly connect far-right extremism in the U.S. to a transnational terrorism network. Treat them the same exact way as if they had gone to fight with ISIS in Iraq or Syria. Being listed as an FTO is a big deal. It means that any U.S. citizen who sends money or material support can be charged with a federal crime. This label would have put Azov on the same list as groups like ISIS or Al-Qaeda. But the U.S. government doesn't do it. And then this year. We begin with breaking news, of course, as war unfolds in Ukraine. This Russia invades Ukraine. U.S. officials say Russia has launched more than 160 missiles since strikes began Wednesday night, targeting major Ukrainian cities from three sides of the country. Azov is back in the headlines, and the world is watching. That's after the break. In the winter of 2022, Putin announced that he was going to invade Ukraine. In order to, quote, demilitarize and denazify the country. And I understood that this was pure Russian propaganda, that this isn't the reason Putin was invading Ukraine. He was clearly using fake news reports and overstating the presence of neo-Nazis in Ukraine's military to justify an imperialistic and opportunistic invasion. But, like with any good propaganda, any good lie, there is a seed of truth buried at the center. No matter what Vlad or others say, I knew that there were neo-Nazis fighting in Ukraine for Azov, and they weren't even hiding their far-right politics. Soon after the war started, Azov releases this video. It's a close-up of a man's hands. You never see his face. On his right, he has a small cardboard box filled with bullets. And on the left, a plastic bag of pig lard. Russia had sent soldiers from Chechnya to fight in Ukraine. Chechnya is a majority Muslim region. So in the video, this soldier says hello to his Muslim friends while he rubs pig fat on bullets and loads them into his gun. It's hateful, pointedly Islamophobic, and it was shared by the Ukrainian National Guard on its official social media channels. FYI, there have been rumors of some US soldiers doing the exact same thing during the war on terror. So soon after, Azov takes on an even more central and visual role in the war. When Russia invaded Ukraine in February, most Azov fighters deployed to defend Mariupol. As the battle has raged, Azov has become notorious for its fierce defense of Mariupol. 
the defense of the port city of Mariupol. They fight Russian forces in and around the city for months, as Russian troops first lay siege to the city and then to a steel plant nearby. A desperate last stand underway right now in Mariupol. Bloody battles raging inside the city's besieged steel plant. It's the final stronghold of Ukrainian resistance in that city. By May, the United States had promised billions in aid to Ukraine. And that aid includes a lot of weapons and also a lot of money. Retired Army Colonel Richard Hooker, now with the Atlantic Council, says one of the weapons that has slowed the Russian momentum is the American-made Javelin anti-tank weapon, which the U.S. is shipping to Ukraine by the thousands. Eventually, the city of Mariupol falls. The remaining soldiers are captured by Russian forces. Regarding the situation in Mariupol. And Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky praises members of Azov who defended the city of Mariupol as heroes. I want to emphasize, Ukraine needs Ukrainian heroes alive. This is our principle. And so this moment, it gave me pause. Because yes, what Azov did, their defense of Mariupol, it was heroic. But I know the background of this group. I know that at least some of its members are fighting not just for Ukraine, but for the establishment of a white ethnostate. And so I wonder, with more weapons, more funding, what role will Azov play in the future of Ukraine? And what will it mean for the international neo-Nazi movement? Right now, you're seeing that far-right, white nationalist, neo-Nazi organizations, and people are, are, are going to Ukraine to get similar fighting experience. But I guess in this scenario, we don't know what's going to happen after that yet. Well, if history is any uh, indicator, um, I mean, the situation does not look good. That's former FBI agent and terrorism expert Ali Soufan. Uh, because so far, these groups are um, not on the fringe anymore. They are more and more becoming mainstream. I've interviewed Soufan before about the similarities between ISIS and neo-Nazi terrorist groups like the base and Adamwaffen. These groups are not only operating in the United States, they are working with other individuals and other groups operating overseas. Um, you know, jihadis go to Afghanistan or to Syria or to Iraq or to Somalia to get a training and get uh, battle experience. As for neo-Nazis? And those guys are going to Ukraine. Like me, Soufan's had his eye on this war for years. And he says even back then, he saw that actually both sides, far-right Ukrainian militias and Russian forces, were recruiting white nationalists. I don't think the U.S. government is keeping numbers of people who are going and joining the fight in Ukraine, both on the Russian side or on the Ukrainian side. Both sides, Soufan says, are actively accepting and providing white nationalists around the world with combat experience and a place to meet and share ideas. What drew them there, at least back then, was battle experience. They go there, they train, they meet other like-minded individuals and peoples, and they come back to the United States in order to, um, you know, continue their plan. To... Sufan and his researchers are watching this happen. Like, they see the posts on social media, and it's men traveling to Ukraine from everywhere. 
You know, we see it in Norway, we see it in Sweden, we've seen it in France, we've seen it in the UK, we've seen it in so many different countries, to include even Serbia and other places. And he tries to sound the alarm bells. So I wrote uh, an op-ed about that in the New York Times. And later Saying, quote, the truth about so-called domestic terrorism, there is nothing domestic about it. And later on, I was asked to go and testify in Congress. In 2019, Sufan brought his fears to Congress. White supremacists from around the world are increasingly forming global networks, much as jihadis did in the years leading to 9-11. And he points out that, unlike the Americans who went to Syria to join ISIS, no one is keeping track of white supremacists who go to Ukraine. These guys can travel to the Ukraine, can meet with other like-minded groups, come back to the United States, and no one is monitoring them. 18 years ago, we grossly underestimated the rising threat of jihadi terrorism. That inattention cost us dearly on September 11, 2001. I cannot say what form the jihadi supremacist equivalent of 9-11 might take, but we should not wait to find out before we act. So remember, Sufan was in the FBI for years, tracking Osama bin Laden and watching as al-Qaeda evolve from a small group of guerrilla cells into a legitimate terrorist organization. And according to Sufan, the similarities between these two ideologies are not trivial. And um, you cannot help but, but relating or, and making the comparison to what happened with the jihadis. Um, leaderless organizations later on became uh, organization with a strong leadership with the presence of Osama bin Laden going to Afghanistan, um, getting combat experience uh, in Afghanistan, meeting each other, planning to what they want to do. This is back in the 1980s, when Afghanistan served as a proxy battleground for the Cold War between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. And just to push back, I don't think what's happening in Ukraine is what happened in Afghanistan. But the similarities are certainly worth keeping an eye on. Because, frankly, even the FBI is. So, back then, what was happening was that jihadis from all over the world, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Sudan, Algeria, traveled to Afghanistan. The December 1979 invasion shattered detente and turned a minor civil war into a superpower contest. The Soviets and the Afghan government versus Mujahideen guerrillas, backed by the U.S. At the time, these groups were collectively known as the Mujahideen, and inside that collective were the groups that would become the Taliban and later Al-Qaeda. The Mujahideen at first battled the Soviets with the crudest of weapons, but it was American support which finally made it so costly. The U.S. government armed the Mujahideen, sent them weapons like Stinger missiles, landmines, the whole nine yards. Sound familiar? After almost a decade of insurgency, the Mujahideen were successful. Soviet forces eventually withdrew from Afghanistan. The last of the Soviet troops leaving Afghanistan after nine years of humiliation and defeat. And many of the men who fought with the Mujahideen then returned home with combat experience, connections, and a more radicalized ideology. Some formed the Taliban. And perhaps the most infamous group to come out of this war, armed and ideologically motivated, was Al-Qaeda led by Osama bin Laden. 
So it's really shocking what we were seeing and the similarities between how uh, the, the, the jihadi terrorism evolved and the jihadi threat evolved and, and, and what's happening today with the white supremacist movement. Right now, there's no bin Laden of the global far-right extremist movement. But, Sufan says... That doesn't mean there won't be in the future. So going, going and joining with uh, many individuals who believe the same thing as you believe, believe in accelerationism, believes in the destruction of the society, believe that there is a conspiracy against you because of your race and people are trying to change the nature of your country, the nature of your civilization. Uh, and you come back, that's not going to make you less radical. It's going to make you more radical. Listen, Sufan's definitely gotten critique for making such a strong connection between ISIS and neo-Nazis. And in Ukraine, I asked Vlad about the similarities Sufan pointed out. People say that something like Azov Battalion or these types of far, the, the, the connections to the far right, that the Mujahideen of the 80s in Afghanistan, it will happen again here. That when this is over, when Ukraine wins, that there will be, you know, a terrorist organization in Ukraine. Do you, what do you say to that, to people who, who think that? You know, uh, Azov, it's, uh, as I already said, it's a part of Ukrainian army. So if they are part of Ukrainian army, so they are not going to create a terrorist organization. It's a fact that Azov is part of the Ukrainian National Guard. And so, yes, I would agree with Vlad that right now, they're definitely not a terrorist group or acting like one. But I've seen with my own eyes Nazi symbols prominently displayed on their uniforms, on their literature and press releases. One day I was at this strip mall in Lviv going to a secret Azov storehouse. And one of the commanders, he rolls up his sleeve and there on his forearm is a giant swastika tattoo decorated and surrounded by several other small swastikas. And it just so happens that after eight years of using an undeniably Nazi symbol as their official logo and defending it, this year, Azov finally removed it. It also happens that in March 2022, U.S. Customs and Border Patrol wrote an intelligence bulletin indicating that they are concerned about domestic security issues involving Americans traveling to Ukraine to fight and then coming back with greater combat experience. The report specifies that Azov is actively recruiting racially motivated violent extremists. And government officials are questioning people at airports, many of whom have prior military experience. This included a former U.S. Marine who allegedly wanted to join up with Azov. And then, I reported that a former U.S. Marine and a former leader of the so-called Boogaloo movement, a network of far-right militiamen and anti-government extremists, is in Ukraine fighting. And he claims he's helping to set up a pipeline for other Boogaloo boys to join him there. And look, when I published that scoop, I got pushback. People saying that this plays right into Russia's propaganda about Ukraine. I'm trying to thread a fine line here. That there are Nazis flooding into Ukraine is a lie created by the Russian government. But that doesn't mean we can ignore the actual far-right extremists and neo-Nazis who are taking advantage of this moment.
We reached out to Azov, the Ukrainian National Guard, and President Zelensky's office for comment. We did not receive responses. However, in 2019, Azov released a statement on their website. They point out that they are a volunteer movement and that, as a military unit, they don't engage in international politics. They write that Azov, quote, performs only those functions that are assigned to it as a regular unit of the National Guard of Ukraine. And that, quote, Azov does not conduct and has never conducted campaigns for recruiting foreigners into the unit. Everything is still unfolding. And that U.S. government bulletin, it actually ends with a series of unanswered questions framed as, quote, intelligence gaps. How many people will travel from the U.S. to Ukraine to fight? What groups are they trying to join? And what kinds of training are they receiving that they could then bring back to U.S.-based militias and white nationalist groups? Personally, I'm left with the question. Whenever this conflict does end, when groups like Azov are trained and armed, what's going to happen? Some people think that the war in Ukraine is going to last a long time and possibly could become a front, an international front, for fighters from all over the world to come and fight. And that could create a security situation for all of the countries of the world. Do you think that this is possible? For sure, I can say that after this war, Ukraine will be a European Texas, because there is so many arms. Now there's just so many guns being handed out that it's going to be a problem. Yes, especially if we take into account that in Kyiv, almost all people who just wanted to get a weapon, they could do it. And that's the problem. It can create different threats in the future and even terrorist threat. And if and when that happens, there are definitely leaders in the neo-Nazi terrorist movement who are ready to swoop in. Let's see how the weather is in St. Petersburg. So, you're the founder. You say you're no longer the leader of the base, and that you're no longer affiliated. I'm aware that they at least were up until a few months ago, into 2021, was still active. Is it still active? Yes. Yeah, base is still active. Next time on American Terror, I go directly to the source and interview the founder of the base. We've obviously had some contentious exchanges in the past through email and about my reporting on the base. And I'm interested, you know, I want to hear where you think we've gone wrong. You guys pretty much are the ones who got the spotlight, shined on us by infiltrating our chat room. And that kind of is what set the tone. American Terror is a Spotify original podcast from Vice Audio and Gimlet Media. It's reported by me, Ben Maku, as well as Mac Lamara, Ashley Cleek, Sam Egan, Sophie Kazis, and Zachary Kamel. It's produced by Sam Egan and Sophie Kazis, and executive produced by Ashley Cleek, and by Colin Campbell and Nicole Beamsterboer from Gimlet. 
sound design and original music composition by Pran Vandy. Editing by Kate Osborne from Vice Audio and Brendan Klinkenberg from Gimlet. Janet Lee is the senior production manager at Vice Audio. Fact-checking by Maximo Anderson and Nicole Pasulka. Joshua Fisher-Birch was our expert consultant. Special thanks to Katie Sheward, Miguel Fernandez-Flores, Anna Sebeskin, Mac Lamara, Tim Marchman, Josh Visser, Kisa White, and The Infiltrator for risking his life to bring this story to the public. I'm Ben Mackey.